Welcome to the Books of Titans podcast, where I seek truth in the world's best books. I'm your host, Eric Rostad, coming to you from the beautiful Books of Titans studio in Franklin, Tennessee. My goal is to read 52 books per year and share what I'm learning. I'll talk a bit about each book, tie ideas together from a variety of genres, and share the one thing I always hope to remember from each book. Well, this episode is a final exam of sorts. I've now read 291 books for this reading project since 2017, and I track the time that I read, and it is equal 2,757 hours. What I'm going to do here is take those 2,757 hours of reading and consolidate into one hour here of the top ideas the most important things I've come across. And it's not just, I saw this once and I think it's a cool idea. These are the ideas that I've seen span books of fiction and nonfiction. Books written 2,000 years ago. Books written just 50 years ago. Biographies. All different types of books. These are the, the important ideas I, I keep seeing pop up over and over again. And so I'm going to try to find that first time I came across the idea. And if, if I can, I'll even read the quote where that idea, I, I first came across that idea. Other times I'll just kind of share the, 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 the place I found it, maybe not the exact quote, but, but the, either the author or, or the, the, set of, the series of books where I first came across an idea. And so I'll divide this, this episode into three different parts. The first part, I'll cover one idea, and this is probably the most important idea that I've, I've seen across all of these books. And then in the second segment, again, an, uh, one other idea, and then just kind of go uh, somewhat deep into it. And then in the final segment, the, the, the last segment of this episode, I'm going to cover 11 ideas that, uh, that I, I think are very important, but just uh, more in, in a, a faster fashion, whereas the first two segments are, are going to do a little deeper dive into the, the two ideas. I, I hope you enjoy. I hope uh, you can relate to, to some of this. I think one really cool thing is that if you had read these same 291 books, you would probably have a completely different set of, of top ideas. And I think that's one of the most beautiful things about reading, is that we, we are bringing our own experiences, we're bringing our, our li- uh, the other things that we've read, we're bringing uh, just where we are in life at the time when we read these books. And so these are, uh, where possible, I'm going to try to give some of that context as well as to why this particular idea, why did it stick out to me? Uh, What did I think about it beforehand? And and perhaps just kind of give a little more context as to why these things stood out to me. So let's just get going here. I'm going to go into segment one right right away here. And the idea I want to cover here, uh, the first one, and and this is the one that I, I consider to be the most important, is the idea of direction. And just to take a quick step back, a lot of the ideas that I share in this episode are going to seem uh, obvious and maybe commonplace. But I, I think that's part of the the beauty of it and, and the truth of it and, and the importance of it is that there's nothing that's going to be earth shattering here. But these are the important ideas that 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 span a lot of different books and a lot of different uh, genres and that sort of thing. And so back to direction here, the, this is this is my first big, big thing. And so direction in the sense of where the direction of our lives and how daily decisions determine that 
direction. We don't just all of a sudden end up in a desired location. It's actually you 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 have if you have this desired endpoint in in mind, like you you actually have to work your way back, and it gets down to the granular level level of every decision that I make during a day. And that, that could, that could become crippling in the sense of just, you know, being overly stressed about, about every decision. And, and it's not that it's just more, we have, we have so many decisions every day that are not seen by others. They're within our head, they're within our, our hearts, they're within, they're within us. And we, we can, we can try to fool people in the sense of, showing a certain thing, a, a certain kind of endpoint. But if, if the daily decisions that we're doing are not in line with that direction, uh, it's, it's, you're, you're not going to reach that, that final direction. So let me get into, uh, the places that I've seen this. And, and the first is, is, uh, is with an author and, and that is David Goggins. And I first came across this in the book, uh, living with a seal, and that is by Jesse Itzler, and he actually invited David Goggins to live with him for a month in, on the condition he would do whatever he said. And there, there's just this strong idea in that book that everything you do, like uh, the the decisions you make on a daily basis, are going to determine that direction for your training or for your your life in general. And and I guess the best way to to share this is is a story I heard by David Goggins on a podcast episode where he's running one day and this car pulled up to him and he, he didn't know what this guy was doing if if there was going to be a problem or, or something and and the guy rolls down the window and and he he asks David Goggins he says what what are you training for? And David Goggins uh without a, missing a beat he says I'm training for life. And he probably was training for some race he had coming up or something like that. But that's that's not how he was viewing that run that day. He was viewing that as as training for life. And he knew if he had not gone out on that run today or uh, on that day, that that would make not going out on the run the next day all that much easier. And the next day, and the next day, and so it it it, it that idea of doing or not doing just at the very basic level, doing or not doing something on a given day is part of the direction. So that, that's the first place that I, that I really saw this. And, and I read that Living with a Seal before I started this reading project. So it just kind of got me thinking. And then I read Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. And I read it in 2019. And I came across this quote, and, it, and it's a paragraph here. And so I ask you to stick with me, but I consider this to be the most important paragraph I've come across in this reading project. And it ties in with this idea of direction. And so here we go. I would much rather say that every time you make a choice, you are turning the central part of you, the part that chooses into something a little different than what it was before. In taking your life as a whole with all your innumerable choices, all your life long, you are slowly turning this central thing either into a heavenly creature or into a hellish creature, either into a creature that is in harmony with God and with other creatures and with itself, or else into one that is in a state of war and hatred with God and with its fellow creatures and with itself. To be the one kind of creature is heaven, that is, it is joy and peace and knowledge and power to be the other means madness horror idiocy rage impotence and eternal loneliness 
And now here's the key sentence here. Each of us at each moment is progressing to the one state or the other, end quote. Each of us is at each moment is progressing to the one state or the other by these decisions every day. So that was in Mere Christianity. The next book where I saw this come up, The Places Beyond the Maps, and this was the one of the, the last books. It, it's actually in the Wingfeather Tales, part of the Wingfeather Saga. It's actually an extra book at the end. And this was, this was sort of a novella uh, within, within that book of, of tales, and it was written by Doug McKelvey. And this is very short, but he nailed it. So he says this. <clears throat> so he did not resist in the small ways that a man might. And in time, the accumulation of such daily choices of acquiescence hardened into a kind of moral muscle memory, such that resistance was no longer even a possible option. For almost nine years, the man had been rehearsing his surrender. End quote. So this, this, is, a, uh, this is a novella, this is a, a work of fiction, and Doug McKelvey is telling the story of this man who in time of crisis, when his daughter is being taken from him out of his own house, he does not act. He does not act to protect his daughter. And he said that choice was made nine years prior. For almost nine years, the man had been rehearsing his surrender with these daily choices and of, of acquiescence. And he just, he nailed that so well, but it, but it, but it goes into that idea of you're, you're not going to be when, when, when you're needed, when, when times are hard and you're needed to make the right decision, uh, you're not going to make the right decision in that moment. If you've not been making the right decisions when no one's looking and in your daily life. Next up, how Adam Smith can change your life. This one's by Russ Roberts. And what's cool about this one is uh, this is about Adam Smith's book, The Theory of Moral Sentiments. And Adam Smith's most popular book is The Wealth of Nations. And there's this idea of the, the invisible hand and in that the baker baking his bread and selling it and, and uh, the, the brewer doing what, what he or she does, that all of these things come together and there's this invisible hand that, that kind of runs the market just by each person um, pursuing their, their self, self-interest. But in the theory of moral sentiments, what Russ Roberts points out here is that that invisible hand also applies at the moral level as well. And so let me read just a, a few sentences here. Being trustworthy and honest and a reliable friend or parent or child doesn't just lead to pleasant interactions with people around you. It doesn't just lead to having a good reputation and being respected. Being trustworthy and honest maintains and helps to extend the culture of decency beyond your own reach. When you behave with virtue, you are helping to sustain that system. End quote. So here we get into the idea of not just daily decisions and in and, and, and doing making the right decision when no one's looking. Not only does that set the the direction of your life, so the the idea that the collection of these these small decisions every day are setting a, a overall direction of your life. So not only that, but what we're seeing here is that it also impacts the moral culture around you. And so by your daily decisions, you're impacting this this larger set 
almost with an invisible hand. You're, you're, it's, it's impacting the moral culture of, of you, where you live and, and your world. And so that's just an important idea as well. It's not just for you and the direction of your life, these decisions, it's impacting those around you. We get into, uh, next is an idea and something I've thought about for a long time of who survives a concentration camp. If, if you are sent to a concentration camp, who is it that survives that? And, you know, unfortunately, you have to acknowledge that there's a lot of luck involved. I mean, just the, the horror of, of everything going on at a concentration camp. Some people just get shot just walking by or get sent right to the gas chamber, that sort of thing. But there are two books here, The Gulag Archipelago and Man's Search for Meaning. These are two of my favorite books for the entire project. And they're not they're not fun to read. I mean, it's about horrible things. The Gulag Archipelago is about the, the Gulag system in Soviet Russia. And then Man's Search for Meaning is uh, Viktor Frankl in, in his survival of a, of a concentration camp. But... Who survives the concentration camp? And, and I, I don't have exact quotes from these, but uh, two just kind of overall ideas from those two, two books uh, that, that came across is the person that survives the camp is the person that has ma- been making the decisions before they ever arrived at the camp to be the type of person who would survive at a camp. And again, it just goes into that daily decisions thing it, it you're not just going to arrive at the concentration concentration camp or or some horrible situation and be the type of person that survives you you're making that decision today right now if you're going to be the person that would have the strength to survive not strength like physical strength but strength of character strength of mind that would survive a concentration camp and there are a number of examples in those books, but that, that is an idea that just comes up over and over. And again, just it's the daily decisions, it's the small decisions, it's the ones that when no one is looking and that those almost become an unconscious set of decisions that, that we just, we make and, and allow us to make the right decisions when, when the time comes. Last thing I want to point out in this section is just uh, how... The, these daily decisions tie in very well with habits as well, and and there's different there's different levels of this, but but on on uh, a couple books, Psychology of Money and then Atomic Habits, uh, there there's this discussion that well in Psychology of Money you get, you get a lot of talk about compound interest, and then in in Atomic Atomic Habits, James Clear says that habits are the compound interest of self improvement. Uh, that's kind of, kind of an idea that, that comes through in that book. Habits are the compound interest of self-improvement. And so habits are, are in a way, you, habits can, can help you on these, these daily decisions. The, the final book I want to highlight here is On Reading Well by Karen Swallow Pryor. And, and I started off 2022 reading that book. And she distinguishes between the the virtues and how there are a set of virtues that that we can work on and, and that are that we can become better in in these daily decisions and then she also highlights three 
virtues that she calls the theological virtues that that are not able to be generated within us, but but they come from somewhere else. They come from God. Uh, theological virtues, and I found her distinction in those virtues to be very helpful in thinking of those. And she calls the theological virtues. She says that those are faith, hope, and love, and that those m- must come from outside of us and, and work their way within us, uh, as opposed to us kind of like trying to do daily decisions to, to, to prop them up or something. We, they, we can definitely uh, enhance them, but uh, they, they must generate from outside of us. So that was a very helpful way just to, to, thinking, to think about that. And, and I, I'm sorry, I keep saying that this is going to be the last book, but I, I keep remembering some other ones. The, this will be the final one for this section on, on the idea of direction. Uh, a book called Start With Why by Simon Sinek. And I read this in 2017. This was one of the first books I read for the project. Uh, but, but let me read a quote from, from this one. Everything you say and everything you do has to prove what you believe. A why is just a belief. That's all it is. Hows are the actions you take to realize that belief. And what's are the results of those actions, everything you say and do. End quote. I, I liked this idea too of just a a general why or an, an overarching idea for for your life. An overarching why can help direct a lot of the decisions you make. So if if, if you're uncertain on on you know what what do I do in a given certain circumstance, even if it's a, a so-called small decision in my daily life, like what what how do I make the right decision? And, and I just loved uh, this, this idea of there, there has to be some sort of an overarching why. And you get that a lot in, in um, oh gosh, what is it? The um, man's search for meaning uh, of just, there has to be some sort of a, a overarching purpose. And that kind of helps guide these, these daily decisions as well. So started with, with my, notion that uh, that things would just happen that that if a crisis occurred I would just kind of step up to the plate and and be the do the right thing in that circumstance but as I've seen in my own life and my own choices and, and things that I've gotten gotten wrong there is a a direction that is set in a life and and I that has just helped me think through things so much uh, in in my life. And, and really from reading books for this project is just what direction am I going? And then just to kind of take a step back, what decisions am I, am I making on a daily basis when no one's looking? And, and, and I find it so helpful too, because if it's more about direction and if I screw up at any given time, that next decision, that, that small decision can right the ship. It can get back on the right direction. So if I make a, uh, if I screw up one day and just, I'm down on myself, that kind of thing, it doesn't, that doesn't have to define the rest of the day. I can, I can, I can shift and get back on that, the right direction going forward. And that's just, it's been so helpful to think of things in that way. All right, next up for the important ideas. This is more of a framework for thinking of oh a, a variety of things, and I'll, and I'll get into some of those. But this is means versus ends. So in 2021, I read the full Robert Caro series about Lyndon B. Johnson called The Years of Lyndon B. Johnson. And it was one of the greatest series of books I've ever read in my life. And I think about these books often. One idea that came up 
over and over in that series was that of means versus ends. So let me read, this is from the introduction of the second book, Means of Ascent. And uh, here, here is, uh, this, this perfectly summarizes it. That campaign raises, in fact, one of the greatest issues invoked by the life of Lyndon B. Johnson, the relationship between means and ends. Many of the ends of LBJ's life, civil rights in particular, perhaps, but others too, were noble, heroic advances in the cause of social justice. Although those ends are not a part of this volume, those ends are a part of that life. Many liberal dreams might not be reality even today were it not for Lyndon Johnson. Those noble ends, however, would not have been possible were it not for the means, far from noble, which brought Lyndon Johnson to power. Their attainment would not have been possible without that 1948 campaign. And what are the implications of that fact? To what extent are ends inseparable from means? Of all the questions raised by the life of Lyndon Baines, Baines Johnson, no question is more important than that. End quote. So to what extent are ends inseparable from means? So what, what we see in the LBJ series is, um, as I described it in the episode about uh, book two, the, the, he, he was an evil man. I mean, maybe that was episode one. Uh, LBJ, I mean, there, there was just so much evil and awfulness about the man. And this is from when he was a kid all the way through. You, you, you can read all about it in, in these episodes. And part of these awful things that he did were to have, to gain power. And he had set from when he was a kid, he wanted to be president. And so he was going to do everything, no matter, you know, no matter how good or bad, he was going to do everything to get, to become president. And he did become president. And he did some amazing things when he was president. But what about the means to get to those ends? And that, that, that is the question that is brought up in, in this series so much. And it's just, it's, it's amazing to think about because it comes up so much. And I, I've just found myself using this as a framework to think about so many things in life right now. So for instance, is it, is it okay to vote for the bad politician, the 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 guy that you you don't you don't think is the right person, but he's part of he or she is part of your party and is going to put forward the ideas and and is going to get to the ends that you want. Is it okay to have that person? Uh, is it is is it okay to vote for that person? I see it in churches. Is it is it okay to have a bad pastor who brings in money and makes converts and and grows the church and all that? You know, he's got this this moral problem though. Is it okay if the means lead to a good end? Is it just I mean just think of so many different things. This comes up so much. Is it okay for is it okay to to lie, to get to the end that you want. And, and I think what it comes down to is it, it's not possible. At a, at a very black and white issue, it's not possible because as you're doing the, say, corrupt means to get to a, a what you think might be a good end, 
you're corrupting the whole process. It, it, it ties in very closely to this daily decisions idea that if, if you're using these bad means to get to a, a, what you think is a good end, it's corrupting the whole thing and it's, it's diverting the direction. I want to read just one more uh, quote here. And this is, I, I've read, I, well, I read the Bible as uh, the first book for 2020. And then I'm reading it right now again, just straight through. And, and in 2020, that was the first time I'd ever done that in my life. And then in 2021, I just read through the New Testament just without reading through the Bible. And what's, what's interesting is that uh, things will pop out, especially after reading different books. And so after reading the LBJ series, uh, I, I just, I had this means versus ends thing at the forefront of my mind, <laughs> you know, no matter what else I'm reading. And, and I see it come up so much in so many different books. Uh, if you've listened to this podcast for any period of time, you hear that come up in so many different books. And I, and I like to highlight it just because it's fun to see what different authors say about it. But after having read the LBJ series and then coming to the New Testament again, I, I came across uh, the Sermon on the Mount and just thought it was interesting what, what Jesus says about this. He says, By their fruits you shall know them. Do men gather grapes from thorns or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree brings forth good fruit, but the corrupt tree brings forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Evil, uh, every tree that does not bring forth good fruit is honed down and cast into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits, you shall know them. End quote. And so I, I, I just love the clarity of that. Uh, a, a bad tree cannot bring forth good fruit. So a bad, ba- bad means cannot bring forth a good end. And yes, that's simplistic, but I found it very helpful as a framework and and to to consider it that way and just to in 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 looking at decisions in my own life or or of if I have a choice in something, what is the person or thing uh, are they are they pursuing the right way right now, or are they promising some future good thing? but using shady methods to to get there. That's just a really important thing to, to consider. So in this final segment here, I want to highlight uh, uh, some different, uh, kind of two, two uh, categories of things. One is just uh, important ideas, but then also uh, additional frameworks that have helped me to think about things and, and uh, even read other books uh, with, with this framework in mind. So these are not in any particular order here, but uh, the, the second book I read for the entire project, so this would have been in 2017, was Ernest Hemingway's The Old Man and the Sea. And the idea is just the importance of time. And so there's not like some awesome quote from this book that, that talks about that, but it's just more the, the book as a whole. And I saw it pop up in The Old Man and the Sea, but this, this is one of those ideas that I've seen many, many times. It's, it's been in, in a lot of books. And uh, one way that it gets presented a lot is just to kind of ask the question, if, if, you're, if, if someone is, is in their, their, the last part of their life, would they pay a certain amount of money to, to experience, like to, to be able to hug their two-year-old kid again? Uh, 
And a lot of people would pay an enormous amount of money to, to have that experience again. And so when you think of what is the most non-renewable resource, a lot of people will say money, uh, but perhaps the correct answer is time. And that just kind of makes you think about how you're living each day and you can't get time back. It, it's a non-renewable resource. So make the best of it. I, this is just, that's the plain idea. That's the, the basic idea that it comes up in so many different types of books, biographies, autobiographies, fiction, nonfiction. I see it all the time. And it's just a great reminder because it's, it's one of those important ideas. Next idea comes from the Gulag Archipelago. And I'll read it here. Gradually, it was disclosed to me that the line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart and through all human hearts. The line shifts inside us. It oscillates with the years and even within hearts overwhelmed by evil, one small bridgehead of good is retained. And even in the best of all hearts, there remains an up, unuprooted small corner of evil, end quote. Now, this comes in a book about the Gulag system, and Alexander Solzhenitsyn was a prisoner in, in the Gulag. And I read that this book, I, I uh, had heard good things about it, uh, that it was a powerful book, and I read it expecting to learn about how awful the, the Gulag system was. And that definitely came up. Uh, you read about the torture and, and just the, the awful things. But what I did not expect was that. And he's in this place where there are guards over him, and he talks about them. These are those are the people that are that are losing their soul. They're becoming less human by doing what what they're doing. But this idea that the line dividing good and evil passes through every human heart is such an important idea for our time right now. Uh, you you look at any discussion going on in and. and kind of devolves into an us versus them. And, it, and if I'm part of the us group, I'm in the right, and everyone that is part of the them group is, is in the wrong. And it comes up in other books as well of what are, what are frameworks for countries and, and political ideas and ways to run the country or the economy? What what are the best ways to do that? And if, if the, the idea being put forward is that if we just get rid of all these people here, they're causing the problems. If, if we could just get rid of them, everything would be okay. Beware of those ideas. What Solzhenitsyn points out here is that that line dividing good and evil runs through every single one of that, uh, uh, one of every single one of us. And so there's not this angelic good group over here that's going to set things in order. There's not this evil satanic group over here that is going to destroy everything. That line runs through each and every one of us. And if we don't recognize that in ourselves, uh, it's it's part of the problem because you can't divide people into us them. Yes, there are certain ideas that are going to be better than others. There are, are certain ways that are better than others. But to to just automatically split between the us and them, 
uh, that this quote in Gulag Archipelago just just nails that. But but again, just an, uh, an idea that is helpful as a framework and just it's something that that I see over and over. Uh, next up, man's search for meaning, and the idea here is that uh, kind of the paradoxical paradoxical idea that by giving of yourself, you 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 may survive longer. And before I read a couple quotes here, uh, it reminds me of the book Unbroken, and there's this point where a their their jet gets shot down. And they, they're, they're in the ocean. They, the three of the people survive, and, and they're in this life raft thing. And uh, Louis Zamp- Zamperini says, all right, here's what we have for food, and we need to ration this because we don't know how long we're going to be out here. Uh, we just we need to ration this. And the next morning he wakes up, and one of the guys has eaten an entire chocolate bar. Like this was a chocolate bar that was supposed to last them the entire time. And he just eats, he eats the whole thing. And that is the first person that ends up dying on the raft and the other, the other two survive. And it's just, you think about that and, and, and then you read something like man's search for meaning. And there, there's these parts where, where people give their last bit of bread away to somebody else and they survive. Like the person that gave it away survives in in a in a situation like that of of just pure hell you would think that you would want to just grab everything for yourself as much as you can if if they're throwing out bread you would you would want to go there and grab it and yet there's this paradox paradoxical idea that some of the people that survived were actually those who gave so there there's something inside of us that that becomes alive in that and so let me, let me just read one quote here from um, Man's Search for Meaning. A man who becomes conscious of the responsibility he bears toward a human being who affectionately waits for him or to an unfinished work will never be able to throw away his life. He knows the why for his existence and will be able to bear almost any how. And then another point, another part here. We who lived in concentration camps can remember the men who walked through the huts comforting others, giving away their last piece of bread, they may have been few in number, but they offer sufficient proof that everything can be taken from a man but one thing, the last of the human freedoms, to choose one at one's attitude in any given set of circumstances, to choose one's own way, end quote. There's, I just love that, though. The um, giving away their last piece of bread. They may have been few in numbers, but they're proof that everything can be taken from a man but that, but that one thing. There's something about making that choice to, to help someone else other before you help yourself uh, actually helped people to survive, even amidst that hell. There's a really intriguing idea. Uh, next up, the book Generations. And this one was more of a framework type of, of idea, and it shifted my view of history. So I, I think just growing up in, in school, I got the impression, and so th- this is here where I'm kind of describing where, where I thought before and then what this book helped me to, to change in my thinking. I, 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 I think I had this idea that history was moving along this trajectory, and it was moving in a good direction. You know, things were getting better. Uh, there were fewer, there's less poverty in the world. Um, 
perhaps there was more peace. Uh, you know, we're getting smarter. We're getting more technologically advanced. We're advancing in medicine. We're, we're sending people to the moon. We're, we're doing, you know, things are, are progressing along this trajectory of, of history. And you look, it used to be the dark ages. And, you know, now we're, now we're in the enlightenment and, and things are moving up and, and just, you know, history class and all that, 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 that's always the idea that I, that I got that, that we are more advanced now than people were in the past. And everything's moving in the upward trajectory. But what Generations puts forward is that there are are four sets of generations that cycle. And so instead of a trajectory history, it's more of a cyclical history. And so things are going to be repeated. Uh, There are certain groups of people that uh, that are part of each generation that in the sense that there there are common, common pieces of these different generations, and they repeat every four generations. And just just that shift in thinking of, of looking at, at the world, like, it, it, like it's a model of looking at history. And what they do is, is look back in this book, they look back, and this was written, uh, oh gosh, when was it? But I mean, it was like 19, 1991. And they're they're saying you know this is these are the generations that were over the past four hundred years and these were their the the things about them and if we and then they project that into the future and there's just some incredible chapters in this book there's one that that's like you know what if a terrorist uh, attack happened in the early two thousands uh, if if this generation was was in power. Uh, this is how they would, would would respond. There's a further chapter on the crisis of 2020, which, you know, this is written in 1991, and they're talking about a crisis of 2020, which, you know, if COVID was anything, it was it was it was a crisis in a lot of ways. And so, uh, just going through that and, and talking about um, uh, how how different groups would 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 react, it was. Um, It was interesting. So let me just read a a section here from the preface. This book presents the history of the future by narrating a recurring dynamic of generational behavior that seems to determine how and when we participate as individuals in social change change or social upheaval. We say, in effect, that this dynamic repeats itself. This is reason enough to make history important. For if the future replays the past, so too must the past anticipate the future. End quote. And so this was just a, uh, an important book in that sense of, of thinking through uh, a different method of looking at history. And, and it is, instead of this upward trajectory, maybe it works uh, cyclically instead. And then just even being aware of, of the generations and, and how they think and how they, they behave. Uh, it was a very, very helpful book in a, in, in set of ideas. Next up, we've got uh, Surely You're Joking, Mr. Feynman by Richard Feynman. And you've probably heard the quote that I'm about to, to say, but again, it's just a good reminder. The first principle is that you must not fool yourself, and you are the easiest person to fool. Reminds me of a, a course I took in grad school where first day of class, the, uh, the, the teacher came in and, and said, everything that you think is wrong, everything you know is wrong. And I don't think he believed that, but he wanted to, to shift our mind to where we would be open to rethinking everything and looking at things in a, in a fresh way. And so that ties in very well with this. You are the easiest person to fool. So just beware. 
Uh, another uh, idea is of the flourishing life, and this comes up in a lot of things. I, 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 as part of this project, I've read every book by Russ Roberts, the the economist and host of the Econ Talk podcast, and he talks a, a lot about the the flourishing life and how that should be a, a goal of 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 people, you know. And and we just kind of we we want a flourishing life. We want we want things to grow in our lives and, and to, to get better at things and, and, and that sort of thing. And so he talks about this in, in a number of different ways and uh, in, in religious ways and in, in, in different different ways, but of, of having this flourishing life. And I, and I was listening to a podcast recently and they talked they talked about uh, the Sermon on the Mount, which, which I referenced earlier uh, from the New Testament. And they said that uh, the the Sermon on the Mount, there's these blessings at the beginning of blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the meek, and blessed are are um, just you know just all these different blessings. And uh, in this podcast, the person was saying that an, another possible translation of blessed, it, uh, we don't, it, it's hard for us to think of of blessing. You know, what does blessed mean? Um, but another possible translation is flourishing are the, and then such and such. But when you read through that list, it's not anything that uh, a modern philosopher or, or someone talking about a flourishing life would say, you know, bless, uh, flourishing are the poor in spirit, flourishing are the meek. Um, it's, it, and, and so it just kind of begs the question is, is that correct? Is, 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 is this hitting on something that, that, these modern philosophers are, are missing. Uh, I just think, you know, you hear all the time, uh, you, you need to get rid of people in your life that are, that are, um, that are weighing you down or something like that. But like, is that, is that, is that what you should do? Um, is that flourishing to, to just dump people when, when they don't fit into your life? Like, is that flourishing? So it just kind of begs that question. And, and I think a lot of what we, see and hear of like, this is what's going to lead to a flourishing life. I don't, I don't think those things are, are correct. And so just rephrasing the blessed are, but uh, thinking of that as fl- flourishing are the, just helped me to kind of uh, re- rethink that. So that was, that was another of these ideas. Uh, next up, we've got Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman. And in this book, he talks about system one and two thinking. And you've got these systems and system one is kind of the unconscious. Uh, he doesn't use that term, but um, and then system two would be more of the of the conscious thought. So if you come across something in your life, your 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 system one is going to to be the first thing that 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 comes up, and th- this is kind of your unconscious thinking. And then system two, like you might have more time to think about it and 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 go into that. But it 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 also talks about. Uh, how can you get things from system two to system one? And it, this ties in very well with, with daily habits and, and what I talked about in the first segment as well of just, you can, you can kind of train yourself in, in some of these things. And, but just that framework for thinking about system one and two, and then just knowing that system one can be very flawed helps in, in decision-making and, Kind of taking a step back and looking at how we might make a decision on uh, on any given thing, and so sometimes that system one is correct, and, and the first thing that comes to your mind and is based on things you're not even aware of, and it, it might be more true than system two thinking. But sometimes system two 
can get it right as well. So, uh, provided a, a really nice framework just for, for thinking of, of thinking. Uh, next up, guns, germs, and steel. This was one that, um, that I, I was very interested in because it starts off with this battle of Cajamarca. And it's one that I'd read about in the past, but this battle in Peru where, where, the, where the Spanish come in and just completely decimate um, the, the culture there. And, uh, and there's a, there, the, in that battle of Cajamarca, the Spaniards do not lose a single person. And they have superior weapons. There was the element of surprise. There, there's a bunch of things going on. But how were they able to sail from Spain, go into Peru, and just defeat the Incan, the, this this huge group of people? Um, what what made it so that they had superior weapons and ships to to even get over there and that kind of thing? And so this book answers that question. And uh, one of the key points is just that the environment and food production indirect is indirectly a prerequisite for the development of guns, germs, and steel. And so if even if, so some some ideas of history are that uh, there's a superiority of Europeans or something and, and so you look at Australian history and 40 year 40,000 years they have the Aborigines and then in a hundred years Europeans are able to go there and, and completely transform the place more than the past 40,000 years but what what Jared Diamond does in in this book and what he says is that, yeah, but they they took they the Europeans that came over, they took from their country uh, food, animals, and plants, and uh, superior technology, and then brought that to Australia, and then were able to do these things. But when Europeans would just go without those things, they they would have the same experience as as people that had lived there. So just kind of a neat way to think, and just a reframing of. Why, why are some cultures, why are cultures different? And then why did some have superior technology? Why were some more advanced? It just gives a, a much broader scope. And again, one of those framework type books that, that help to help you to think through uh, when, when you're reading other, other books. Next up, uh, this idea of anti-fragile, anti-fragility. And so it obviously, obviously comes from uh, Nassim Nicholas Taleb's book, Anti-Fragile. But I, I actually want to quote from another book about this idea of anti-fragility. So just first up, there's um if if you're thinking of a of a package that is fragile and you know you, you want to handle it with care, when you ask people what what is the opposite of fragile, and most people will say uh, resilient, like you could drop a package and it, and the contents inside would not break. But what Talib says is that actually the opposite of fragile is anti-fragile, because the opposite of fragile would be, so if something's fragile and you, you drop it and it breaks, the opposite of that would be you drop it and it gets better. And so we see these things with uh, for instance, working out. If we go to the gym, uh, it actually tears your muscles, but that has to happen in order for you to get stronger. And people are anti-fragile. And so we're by coddling them, we're doing the exact wrong thing 
that people need. Uh, so safe spaces and anxiety solutions are not the solution. Like we're, people are not fragile in, uh, or they're anti-fragile. And so by coddling, you're doing the wrong thing. And so let me just read a quote from Coddling of the American Mind. The foolishness of overprotection is apparent as soon as you understand the concept of anti-fragility. Given that risks and stressors are natural, unavoidable parts of life, parents and teachers should be helping kids develop their innate abilities to grow and learn from such experiences. There's an old saying, prepare the child for the road, not the road for the child. But these days, we seem to be doing precisely the opposite. We're trying to clear away anything that might upset children, not realize that in in doing so, we're, we're repeating the peanut allergy mistake. If we protect children from various classes of potentially uh, upsetting experiences, we make it far more likely that those children will be unable to cope with such events when they leave our protective umbrella. The modern obsession with protecting young people from feeling unsafe is, we believe, one of the several causes of the rapid rise in rates of adolescent depression, anxiety, and suicide. End quote. Just makes you you think... uh, I mean, you, you just hear of all these things going on now with, with safe spaces and, and anxiety solutions. And the authors of The Coddling of the American Mind are actually coming from the, the left. And, and they're saying, hey, look, these things are that, that are happening at university campuses, they're, they're actually the incorrect way to approach these. And I, I, this is one of those books that I consider to be an important book, because if if we are doing the wrong thing from what should be done, if we are anti-fragile, we are probably actually creating more harm than good. Next up, uh, I've got two more here. I'm going to go back to David Goggins, and he has what's called the 40% rule. And the 40% rule is that when you feel that you are at your limit, so say you're, you're running and you're like, I, ju- I just can't go any further. He says you are only at 40% of your capacity. You have 60% left that you could tap. That's an amazing thing. Whether you believe that or not, just having that in your head that I am only at 40%, I still have 60 to go. Man, that, that really makes you think. And that's been just a helpful thing, whether I'm out running or, and and this is a man who has tested his abilities to the utmost. And so if anyone were to know if the 40% rule were true, it would be David Goggins. But I find myself thinking about that a lot, uh, whether it's just so many different parts of life, whether it's uh, in personal relationships, whether it's um, running, whether it's working, just all these different things. You have a lot more in that fuel tank. The last idea here comes from, uh, this is probably my third most favorite book for this reading project, and it's Narrative of the Life of Frederick Douglass. And there's this point where he hears his master, his slave master talking, and he's talking, the slave master's talking to his wife, and he's just saying, we, you can't teach Frederick how to read. And, and this is why. He would at once become unmanageable and forever unfit 
to be a slave and of no value to his master. As to himself, it could do him no good, but a great deal of harm, it would make him discontented and unhappy. And so here's what Frederick Douglass says about that. From that moment, I understood the pathway from slavery to freedom. End quote. And, and that pathway was reading. It was, it was to learn how to read, to be able to read, because he realized that, uh, that, that this slave master was, he had an interest in keeping him from reading because he would, he knew that that could give him ideas. And so I just think that's such an important thing. I, uh, and it comes in context of, uh, having a conversation today with, with, with someone who teaches at the high school level and he said that kids just don't need, know how to read anymore. Uh, it's being lost. It's being lost with, with phones, with, with our phones and scrolling and, and TikTok and, and all those, those things. We're, we're, we're losing the, the capability of reading. And what happens when that happens to a culture? What happens when that happens to an individual? Um, if you, if you read Frederick Douglass's account, that is a dangerous place to be in, and the way to get out of that is is through reading. So to recap here, uh, these these are some of the most important ideas I've seen for this reading project. Whether they provide a framework for helping me to think, or and in, into into then take those into other books and 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 view view it in, in a certain way. No framework is perfect, but but I do find that frameworks can help just kind of position things and and help me to remember other other things and and then to test that framework and to see if it's the right one with with other books. On the idea side, these are ideas that I've seen across multiple books, variety of authors, variety of times and different cultures. And these are the important ideas. These are the, the ideas I think about when I'm, when I'm out running and, and don't have a screen in front of me or, or something like that. The, these are the ideas that uh, have, have begun to shape me. These are the ideas that over the past six years I've seen over and over again, and I can't seem to shake. So I hope these have been helpful to you. I hope, um, I hope you've gotten something out of, out of these ideas and I hope you pursue them further. And maybe it just, you know, when you come across these in, in books that you read now that, that, um, that you'll, you'll remember that these are things that I've seen over and over again. I'd love to hear ideas that, that you have of, of things that have popped out to you as you've been reading. You can email me at eric at booksoftitans.com. I'd, I'd love to hear those. Uh, if, if you've read some of these books that I covered in the episode today, I'd love to hear the, the ideas that, that you got from those. You can um, follow Books of Titans on Instagram or Twitter, and the website is stock full of resources to help you find the best books and to create your own reading list. I'll be back in, in a couple weeks, and I uh, also will be starting the phase two of this reading project next week, March 1st. And that will be to read through 200 of the great books. I can't wait to do it. I hope you'll join me in some of those. I'll probably having, be having some discussions on, on those books. You can find that list at booksoftitans.com uh, in the tab for the great books. Until then, keep reading, keep learning, and keep listening. I'm out.